Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, my name's Toby Young, and I'm one of Quillette's London-based editors. Dr. Michael Shermer is an American science writer, founder of the Skeptic Society, and editor-in-chief of its magazine, Skeptic. He's also a long-standing contributor to Quillette, a prolific author, and, according to Barry Weiss's famous New York Times magazine story of a couple of years ago, a member of the intellectual dark web. I spoke to him about his new book, Giving the Devil His Due, Reflections of a Scientific Humanist. Are you worried about publishing a book at this particular time and not just worried that it won't get the attention it deserves, but it's also hard to make the argument for free speech when people are worried about dying from coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, both. I mean, it's kind of a bummer as an author to have this come out at this time because I sort of feel guilty. Like, I, I shouldn't be promoting a book. I should be promoting you know, social distancing or something, although we've all been doing that on social media. So all I could do is press forward. I mean, I had a 12-city book tour all canceled and a UK and, and Germany book tour all canceled and yeah i mean i feel like you know this is the wrong time to do it and i don't know what else to do the publisher wants to bring it out and you know they they have their schedule and so here we go um as for free speech well you know i think there's a, a few points there where um you know it's become politicized and you know like calling it the chinese virus and that you know became a taboo for the political political correct language police, which I thought was overblown. I mean, there's the Spanish flu and the German measles. And, you know, why are we not up in arms about that? You know, because it's from a previous generation and and uh, before language became so politicized. And, uh, you know, I understand the point of the left about, you know, what you call something matters because then people maybe act on that. But it's good to remember they're just words. And, you know, Trump was in part combating this conspiracy meme by the Chinese that the virus was created by the U.S. military as a bioweapon. And so he was kind of getting his dig in, I think, by calling it a Chinese virus and then rationalize it by saying, well, it's from China. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I don't know. To me, this is, you know, back to, to, to my book, this is just much ado about words. Words are not physical violence. Words, you know, aren't going to kill people unless they incite to violence, which is very rare. So, you know, that's my take on that. I guess that there is um, there is a way in which you could um, uh, make an argument for free speech and connect it with the pandemic, um, which is that had the Chinese authorities not silenced the doctors who first raised the alarm and uh, in some cases imprisoned them, um, then we might have been able to nip the outbreak in the bud and saved hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of lives. But 
it's kind of tough to make that argument without sounding like you're trying to exploit a global tragedy in order to promote your own particular hobby horse. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think yeah, a second point uh, that I, I've made on social media is that this is sort of like Chernobyl, you know, where after uh, for, for the first week or so after Chernobyl, you know, we weren't getting accurate information and the Soviet um, bureaucrats were circling the wagons and pointing fingers and covering up and, you know, until it became clear to everybody in Europe from the the fallout wind <laughs> that, you know, something disastrous had happened. And then they finally, you know, gave accurate information. I think the Chinese case is something like that. So I think more as a uh, analog to what happened uh, with uh, Chernobyl, something like that is not, not racist to say that it's accurate. I mean, we know that, that um, communist regimes tend to be not terribly transparent about anything that makes them look bad. And uh, but eventually we find out about it. So I, I think that's a reasonable argument. I mean, we don't know the details for sure, but it, it certainly appears that there was a lot of uh, cover up for a few weeks. And as you said, silencing of doctors. So, you know, the point is the more transparency uh, we have, the more accurate information, the more accurate information we have, then the more we can employ science and technology and medicine to solve problems like this. Are you concerned that one of the effects of the pandemic may be less support for free speech in the long run? Um, you say in your book that one of the reasons people want to ban hate speech is because they see evil as a contaminant. And when you discuss uh, Roy Baumeister's book, Evil Inside Human Violence and Cruelty, uh, you write that modern campaigns aimed at shutting down this or that speaker implicitly present evil as something that may be communicated from one person to another, like bacteria. Is there a risk that um, as uh, that one of the long-term consequences of the pandemic will be um, increased disgust sensitivity, and that may lead to greater calls for censorship? Yes, indeed. I think, uh, I mean, we know from um, political science and social psychology research that conservatives uh, are a little more germaphobic and, and a little more uh, sort of finely tuned to the disgust module of our moral emotions and then more easily equate um, people with bacteria or contagion. And something like this could go in that direction. I'm hoping that we've come a long way since that was done, you know, earlier in the 20th century, fairly commonly, or even in the uh, Rwanda genocide, where the Hutus and the Tutsis were accusing each other of being cockroaches and, and disease contagions and so on. So it's not that long ago. But you know, I'm, I'm hoping the, the arc of the moral universe has been enough that we're past that. But I don't know. And it's not just to, to accuse conservatives. I mean, everybody has that module, the discussed module. It's just dialed up more or less in different people in different groups. Um, but that certainly could happen. And if it does, that, you know, that's something we have to stand up for. I mean, always, you know, I, to me, free speech is the fundamental um, foundation of all the other rights. You know, if we can't think and speak what, you know, whatever we want, you know, sh again, short of inciting violence immediately on the spot, uh, which is very rare, uh, you know, that then everything else follows from that. All other civil rights follow from the right to think and speak whatever you want. So in a crisis like this, the only thing we can have is just open transparency. And, and you know, so Trump's getting hammered, of course, by 
by liberals here in America. Uh, but, you know, he's surrounded by scientists that he seems to be talking to. And Anthony Fauci, uh, you know, the left says, oh, he's being silenced by Trump. And then you see an interview with him and, and they ask him point blank, are you being silenced by Trump? And, and he says, I'm speaking, I'm speaking to you and I'll say anything you want. Ask me anything. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's, it's everybody's saying we shouldn't politicize the virus, but it's it's been politicized and that's unfortunate. Um, you know, maybe Trump could have acted a few days earlier, but, you know, it's not clear um, that, you know, what if that really would have made such a huge difference. Uh, and again, and that goes back to the, you know, the Chinese were slow. So you know, maybe our response to that, which looks slow, was due in part to their slowness. As you say, the kind of conventional wisdom is that um, one of the personality traits that makes people conservative is greater sensitivity to disgust. Um, and one of the manifestations of that is less tolerance for free speech or has been in the past, more sensitivity to blasphemy, to heresy and so forth. Um, but in the last 25 years or so, we've seen much of the um, intolerance that conservatives used to exhibit towards blasphemers and heretics being exhibited by people on the left. How do we explain that, given that liberals presumably have a less developed sensitivity to disgust than conservatives? Why are they so, why do they um, care so much about hate speech and want to suppress it if they supposedly um, uh, don't have the same sensitivity to disgust as conservatives? Or do you think that that disgust sensitivity has just migrated from one side of the political spectrum to the other? Oh, I, I think it, it's it's context dependent and target dependent. Uh, although, so, so let, me, let me know. First of all, I think today's conservatives are more liberal than liberals were, say, in the 1950s. Um, you know, we, we've all had our consciousness raised, you know, the arc of the moral universe is bent for everyone. The moral sphere is expanded to incorporate more people as honorary members of our family and tribe and, and, and group and so forth for everybody. Um, so the differences you see between, say, conservatives and liberals now, um, you know, are, are, you know, they're heightened because we're so sensitive to uh, what we're willing to tolerate that we were willing to tolerate, you know, say decades ago. Um, so there's that. Then in the civil rights movement, you know, there began uh, a, a branch of that of um, monitoring speech as a form of, of discrimination. And, you know, obviously using the N-word is the, the most blatant example. Uh, but, you know, for 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 calling homosexuals fags, you know, and, you know, that kind of language then began to get policed a bit. And with good reason, <laughs> you know, those are really offensive words. And although I would never endorse a law about that, you know, I can see the argument that, you know, we shouldn't use those words. I mean, they're hurtful. And, and when you stop using them, maybe you'll stop thinking it. So I think in the 70s and 80s, when I noticed this happening in the academy, when I was an undergraduate, then graduate student, then a professor in the 80s, um, you know, that that's really when the left started embracing this idea of we really should censor some speech. The problem with that is that once you go down that pathway, then where do you draw the line? I mean, it's pretty easy to say, yeah, you shouldn't use the N-word. I, I agree. Okay, I'm not going to do that. None of us should do that. Let's not do that. Uh, but then you start expanding the category and you get mission creep and concept creep and and, and the and sort of the, the bubble of what 
um, gets put in that category or that basket of of unacceptable speech, you know, just gets wider and wider. So you end up with something like lists of microaggressions that were issued in 2015 by the University of California to the entire system of words you shouldn't use, questions you shouldn't ask, and, and you know, triggering words that could appear in Shakespeare or Jane Austen or whatever. And, and, and you know, professors have to get give uh, trigger warnings and and so on. And then from there, once you go down that pathway, then if you have someone like a Milo Yiannopoulos coming to speak at your campus or a Charles Murray, then then it's a small step to say, hey, wait a minute, that guy is saying things that should go in this basket of offensive language. And, and th then you get the deplatforming. So you can, you can see the pathway from a very reasonable, thoughtful branch of the civil rights movement all the way up to this, you know, kind of insanity we've witnessed the last decade or so in the academy. Do you have, um, I mean, one of the reasons that um, uh, free speech is currently um, under threat, uh, not just in American universities, but across the Anglosphere, is because there is this idea that um, free speech uh, is essentially something which benefits male, pale and stale conservatives um, and is inimical to the interests of minorities. Um, and that uh, if we're serious about protecting historically marginalized groups, then we have to place limits on what people can freely say on campus, lest we undermine the well-being of minorities, um, affect their exam performances, and generally kind of play havoc with their, their mental well-being. Um, how, how do we disabuse people of this idea? How do we challenge this, this quite um, widespread view now that there is this fundamental tension between viewpoint diversity on the one hand and diversity on the other. Yeah, I've heard this accusation because I'm one of those. I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white guy. <laughs> and uh, so when I say, hey, uh, you know, free speech is, you know, the foundation of all that. Well, of course you would like that. You're a, a middle-aged white guy, you know. And it's like, to me, this is just an, uh, an insane argument. It, it, the free speech helps minorities. If if minorities and, you know, historically oppressed people cannot voice their objection to the oppression they've experienced, then how are we going to know about it? I mean, there's a good argument. I, I made this in my previous book, The Moral Arc, that um, that the rise of literacy, particularly novels, helped um, expand the moral sphere in as much as when you read a novel, you put yourself in the head of the character that you're looking out at the world through, through their eyes. The, the expression of... Uh, through novels, TV shows, comic strips, films, and, and so forth, in, in all uh, media of what it's like to be a minority is the only way the rest of us, say, middle-aged white guys, can know what they're experiencing and then expand our moral considerations of them for what they've suffered. So, you know, again, and, and let me just add parenthetically, this the point I make in giving the devil his due is that, you know, one person's hate speech is another person's free speech. And in the 1850s, there was a lot of abolitionist speech from the North migrating to Southern states. 
in which um, abolitionists would would go to the South or they'd you know send books or magazines, newspapers there to try to make the argument for abolition. And Southern leaders made the case that's hate speech. Well, they didn't call it hate speech, but they considered it to be dangerous speech because this could incite violence on the part of slaves who would then this could lead to slave revolts and, and the murder of, of white slave owners and so on. And so they actually made the argument that censorship of slavery abolitionist speech uh, was necessary to prevent violence. Wow. I mean, we would today think that's completely insane. Uh, and I'll actually just read you a portion here from the book. Uh, let's see, in the words of, of South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun, that the abolitionists libeled the South and inflicted emotional injury. Emotional injury. That's, you know, today we would call this hate speech that, that hurts people. That's abolitionist speech. That's the speech today we would support. And the same thing in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. A lot of people thought that things Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were saying incited violence and therefore should be censored. Whereas, of course, today we look back and we, we consider them to be champions of, of civil rights. So the idea that, well, we have to censor whoever, Milo Yiannopoulos, Charles Murray, whoever has been deplatformed, Ian Hersey Alley and so on, you know, who are we to say what in 20 years or 50 years people will look back and go, hey, that, that guy right there, he or that woman right there, she was saying something really important that we now embrace. And if we squelch them and censor them now, you know, what are the consequences of that? So I say just let everybody say whatever they want. And, um, you know, in the, in the light of debate and disputation and response to them, that's how the truth will emerge. And I go so far as to defend creationists and Holocaust deniers in, in my book. I, I talk about how I wrote a letter on behalf of David Irving to the judge in Austria where he was arrested. I mean, this is an incredible case. I think David Irving is no no question about it. he's an anti-Semite, and he's you know he's a he's a purposeful distorter of historical accuracy and so on. I've debunked him, and and still, the idea that he could that that someone could fly to Austria and be arrested at the airport for intending to give a speech. So this isn't even hate speech. This is hate thought. This is a thought crime. And, you know, he was actually convicted and, and jailed. And I wrote a letter on behalf of him to the judge saying this is wrong. Let him out. You know, and and, you know, the best way to deal with someone like a David Irving is just to debunk his ideas and then ignore him. Because <laughs> the last thing, uh, you know, people like that want is to be ignored. I mean, the last thing someone like Milo Yiannopoulos wants when he shows up at a college campus is an empty auditorium. <laughs> you know, public speakers, you know, we hate empty, empty rooms, right? So, uh, you know, have a, you know, students lined up out the door to come hear you speak and protesters and all. This is what people like this love. So that, you know, censorship is the last thing we should do. It, it only makes it worse. A short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text, and all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. 
BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states. And you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. One form that this argument takes isn't that certain um, toxic views uh, should be censored, but certain people, certain classes of people, certain identity groups should be censored. So the argument would go something like this, that privileged, cisgendered, white males should have their speech rights restricted. They shouldn't be able to participate in conversations with the same license as others on campuses, because if you allow them unlicensed free speech, uh, they end up crowding other voices out. And that if you want to encourage uh, historically marginalized groups to speak up, you have to force dominant privileged groups to shut up. Um, uh, So the argument, I suppose, would be that in order to maximize free speech, you have to restrict the free speech of certain dominant groups. Yeah, I disagree with that because once you set up a system in which whoever the dominant group is should be censored and squelched and shut up, what, what happens when your group is the dominant group? You still want those laws on the books or those those norms in society to shut you up? No, of course not. And that that's the point of the title of my book, Giving the Devil His Due, for our own safety's sake. Uh, we have to tolerate this because once you pass laws or you change norms to censor one group of people, you know, what happens in years down the line when, when you, you know, the... the the wheels are reversed, the, the, the valence is reversed or, or whatever, and, and you, know, you don't want that in, in place. Uh, so we just have to, again, just, just let anybody have their say. Now, I mean, if, uh, here we're mostly talking about, you know, say, laws or societal-wide norms. You know, if you're a private institution or a company, university, college, whatever, and you, and you say, look, we, this is what we want to do for the time being. Okay, fine. I, I would still object that that's not the best strategy, but you know, that, that, let's say in the case of creationists, if you want to have a school, a private school that teaches young earth creationism, you're free to do that. Um, I'm not going to hire kids that hire, you know, graduate from your class because they don't want a science, but, you know, you're free to do that. That's different, you know, say, than, uh, you know, a First Amendment issue, which has to do with the law. That said, I still think it's a bad idea to do that, and we can object to that. Now, the gray areas where you have universities and colleges that are, say, private, but they get public money, you know, so it's sort of debatable about to what extent they can control people's speech. And as you as you know, Trump is when he first took office, threatened to withhold public money from universities that, um, you know, that that pass these censorship laws. You know, that that kind of battle I'd rather not see. I'd rather see universities just do this on their own. And, uh, you know, universities that have speech codes. 
you know, it's again, it depends on what you want to do with it. And so like in my chapter on, on uh, Jordan Peterson, and I discussed that, you know, Bill, Bill C-16 in Canada about personal pronouns and, and to what extent that the government is going to force people under the hate speech umbrella to call people what they want to be called. Uh, and I use the analogy when I was in high school, I, in college at Pepperdine, I had a roommate. His name was uh, Dwayne and he hated his name and he changed it to D'Artagnan. You know, with the three musketeers, the fourth musketeer, D'Artagnan. It's like, and he asked us to start calling him that. It's like, what? Okay. And, you know, we all went along with it, you know, and, and, and you know, that's that's a good thing to do to a friend or roommate. Uh, but passing a law that says, I have to call somebody uh, or else I'll be punished or jailed, you know, that's a different, uh, that's a different thing, I think. More moral progress happens, I think, from the bottom up through all of us raising our consciousness, expanding our moral sphere, rather than the top down. Sometimes you have to have draconian laws. Sometimes you have to have use violence to force change, like the abolition of slavery. The United States caught, you know, took a war and about 650,000 dead to put an end to it. Now, it might have come to an end by the end of the 19th century, maybe. You know, it's a debatable point, you know, without a war. But still, sometimes you need to do that. The integration of the South in the late 50s, early 60s, took the president of the United States sending in federal troops to force the governor of, of um, Alabama to integrate their schools. Sometimes it does take that. But more so, forcing people to change their behavior does not necessarily change their beliefs. It comes, uh, I think, better from the bottom up where people's attitudes change. And that has happened slowly over the last 50 years or so. All of us changing the language we use, the words we use, without forcing anybody to do it, just by discussing it and just talking about it. And Where do you stand on um, hate crime? You're very clear that um, you're opposed to hate speech laws, you see them as the 21st century equivalent of blasphemy laws. Um, what about hate crime? Do you think that people who commit hate crimes, uh, whereby they are motivated by hatred of the victim's membership of a particular protected category, do you think people who commit those crimes and who are found guilty should get more severe sentences than people who commit identical crimes, but who don't aren't necessarily motivated by hatred of the victim's membership of a protected group. No, I would just treat them all the same. You know, crime's a crime. If you deface a, you know, a private cemetery, like a, a Jewish cemetery, for example, and you put swastikas on the uh, on the headstone or whatever, um, you know, that should just be the same as vandalism. I, I don't see what what making harsher punishments will do to change the attitudes of the people that hold those beliefs. If anything, it, it reinforces it. it. It makes their fellow group members who share those hateful beliefs even more hardened uh, about changing their, their beliefs. Again, it comes better. It, it happens better from the bottom up, I think. Um, you know, I, of course, in sympathy with the group that's experiencing this, uh, I understand why they feel that way. But, you know, if we if we want to look at it as a practical matter, like what's the cause of this problem and therefore what's the best solution? I think the, re the research shows pretty, pretty strongly that usually these kind of bottom up changing of norms through literature and film and, and, and television and novels and so on, all, all of this together changing our attitudes slowly over decades 
works much better to actually change people's attitudes. I mean, the problem today with the tiki torch carrying neo-Nazis, you know, it's pretty small. I mean, there aren't many of these people. And, you know, when they do incite violence and something bad happens, you know, they could be prosecuted for, for the crimes they committed. That's fine. But, you know, I, I opened the book with, uh, you know, with the story of um, the Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes and his famous Schenck versus the United States case in 1919, you know, where he, he used his famous phrase, the um, the falsely example, the falsely uh, shouting fire in a in a crowded theater and causing a panic. Uh, and therefore, he says, the question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. OK, so what were these dangerous words that were inciting violence that was the equivalent of shouting fire in a crowded theater? It was a group of anti um, draft protesters in Philadelphia. These were um, head of the socialist um, group there, Charles Shank, who distributed uh, flyers to draft age men telling them that the draft um, conscription is like slavery. And, you know, it's not a crazy argument. It, it kind of is. I mean, in a way, the government says, if we decide that we need you to go to war, we now own your body for a certain period of time. You no longer can control your life. We're going to control it. That is kind of a form of slavery. Okay, at least my point is that it, it, it's at least a good argument. And they made it in the in form of print, and they distributed these flyers, and they were convicted. And then, anyway, on, on appeal, I went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and that's where... Um, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes made that case. And ever since then, you get that mission creep. Like, okay, if distributing flyers protesting the draft is inciting violence, then what else could we throw in that basket? And and what gets thrown in there is pretty much anything you want that somebody's doing that you don't like, somebody that's that has different beliefs than you have. Of course, we saw this with the Pentagon Papers in, in uh, the early 70s and now with WikiLeaks. Uh, you know, it, it, obviously there's restrictions on speech. You can't leak the nuclear codes to the to the Soviets or Chinese or something like that. And obviously placing, uh, putting the names of our intelligence officers in foreign countries, you know, on a, on a website, you know, that could be dangerous. Okay, but that aside, if it weren't for Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, we wouldn't have known to what extent the U.S. government was lying to its own citizens. And not just Nixon, but Johnson and Kennedy, and all the way back into the 50s, about what we were doing in Vietnam. And, you know, here I have to t take my hat off to conspiracy theorists, who I'm usually skeptical of and, and often debunking. You know, when they make a point about, you know, things that the government does, false flag operations and this sort of thing, you, you, this, all of a sudden you're down the rabbit hole with Alex Jones. It sounds crazy. But then you read something like the Pentagon Papers or WikiLeaks and you think, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Our government does do things like this, actually. Not quite as extreme as someone like Alex Jones thinks, but something like that does happen. We wouldn't know about that if it weren't for free speech laws that allow those kind of leaks to um, to be uh, upheld. And to the Supreme Court's credit, you know, with in the case of the Pentagon Papers, they allowed the New York Times to publish them. And of course, Nixon tried to shut them down uh, legally, but the Supreme Court sided on the, the side of the New York Times. So 
and now it's you know Daniel Ellsberg is now a hero, a champion of civil rights and transparency in government and, and free speech. But you know that certainly wasn't the case at the time. So that's the kind of that's the kind of historical change I'm talking about. That you know we we can see the value that comes from transparency, even though there's some risks to it. Usually, our fear of what could go wrong by allowing people to speak. Um, is much worse than what actually happens. So here you get a little bit of um, uh, of that kind of uh, negativity bias, where um, where losses hurt twice as much as gains feel good, where you know bad out outweighs good, bad is stronger than good, and all those kind of negative emotions that come welling up. It's easy to think of what could happen if people are allowed to say what they're thinking, and therefore proactively stop them to prevent violence. It's very, very rare where the word somebody uses ends up uh, in violence against some uh, group or leading to conflict or riots or wars. It does happen, but not very often, and our fears are much worse than what really happens. It's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But, like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books, like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuval Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and, of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now back to our podcast. Let me ask you about the um, marketplace of ideas argument. You quote uh, Mill in the beginning of the book, and um, you sort of invoke this uh, concept of the marketplace of ideas in which um, if people are allowed to freely participate in that market, they will eventually arrive at the truth. And you can see that that being true uh, when it comes to science, perhaps even the humanities. Um, but when it comes to uh, moral moral questions, particularly contentious, divisive moral issues like abortion, it doesn't feel as though we are converging on the truth or that we even could. Fundamentally, when it comes to those sorts of issues, are people just going to disagree? Um, and you can't invoke the kind of marketplace of ideas converging on the truth mod to justify free speech when it comes to those moral questions, because there doesn't seem to be um, 
a, a truth there that people are converging on? Or do you disagree? Are you? A, I think you are a moral realist, and you think that it is possible to converge on moral truth. But does one have to believe that? Do you have to be a moral realist in order to defend free speech? Or is it possible that you could be a moral relativist, think that the issue of abortion can never be resolved for, you know, for all time, but nonetheless defend free speech? Yeah, okay, that's a that's a really great question. Um, there's a lot packed in there. I think, first of all, uh, having open debate about complex moral issues is the only way to get to some kind of consilience of of uh, direction of what's more likely to be right or wrong once we've heard all the best arguments from both sides. So you mentioned Mill, you know, that he who, uh, famous quote that we all use, you know, he who knows only his own side uh, doesn't even really know that. Um, so, for example, I make my, most of my students at Chapman University are, are pretty liberal. They're all pretty much all pro-choice, uh, unless I get one or two that are super religious. And, uh, but most of them have no idea what someone like Ben Shapiro would argue for pro-life. And so I contend that they don't really understand the pro-choice position unless they understand the pro-life arguments. So I make them watch, uh, you know, some Ben Shapiro videos because he's so clear and sharp about about the arguments on that other side. And I think the pro-choicers have slightly better arguments. I think I could tie Ben in a debate maybe. I don't know if I could beat him uh, because some issues like that are maybe not ultimately scientifically resolvable or using rational arguments. It may just come – there's certain issues that may just – depend entirely on where you happen to draw the line or define a word a certain way you know life when does what do you mean by life and then and then you're often running on different definitions but but again with the free speech the only way to know is to talk is to actually allow everybody to 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 have their say and see where the chips fall and you know so back to my holocaust denial example i'm certainly sympathetic to jewish groups or even nations like Germany that outlaw it. I understand why. But let's say once we go down that road, and let's say here in America, there's debates about the number of Native Americans who were exterminated by Europeans since uh, 1492 when Columbus first landed here. Okay, you know, how many were here to begin with? It's debatable, maybe 90 million, you know, maybe 100 million, 50 million. How many were exterminated? Probably 90%. Uh, so, you know, so let's say the consensus is like somewhere between 50 and 70 million Native Americans died. Well, what if I say I think it was 30 million? And, and and I have some arguments for why I think it's 30 million. Now, if we have laws in place that say that's a form of genocide denial, it's a kind of a Holocaust denial, and that falls under the umbrella of hate speech, therefore you should not be allowed to publish your theory about how many Native Americans were exterminated. Once we go down that road, you know, th then how are we going to determine historical truth if we can't even make the argument? So instead, just let everybody have their say, and the most extreme cases will usually be debunked or they'll just be ignored, and and that's the best way to deal with it. So now you, you can understand, yeah, but in the example you give, um, you could see why there's an argument for allowing people um, who put forward controversial historical hypotheses should be allowed to do so. So they can be challenged, we can examine the evidence, and we will converge on the truth. But the same, the same model doesn't seem to apply to moral issues, not about what is, but, you know, what ought to be. But you, you challenge that distinction between yeah, I do. Yeah. is. But you do that partly because you're nervous that 
um, if we do maintain that distinction and don't believe in moral truth, that that undermines the case for free speech when it comes to contentious issues like abortion. Well, not just undermines the case for free speech, but also un undermines a secular humanist approach to life. That is, uh, it's, uh, let me back up for a second and give you a little bit of a backdrop to where I'm coming from when I write about like in the book, I have two chapters on this moral realism, and the second one is called Mr. Hume, Tear Down This Wall. <laughs> and mm -hmm. and basically, I'm arguing that the is-ought fallacy is itself a fallacy, and that the naturalistic fallacy is, is um, you know, much ado about nothing. We should break down that wall and, and allow science to try to determine mor uh, moral values. Now, most philosophers, professional philosophers, and I'm not one, uh, tell me I, I, I did not accomplish that technically speaking I, I, there's still i'm still bu building oughts into my ises and therefore the barrier still stands okay maybe i don't care here's my approach you know uh, for my entire adult life since i gave up christianity in my early 20s when i was a born again at pepperdine university i was a born again evangelical for about seven years and i gave that up and went down this other path of science and humanism I've been kind of confronted with this, yeah, but then what's what's the meaning of life if, if there is no God? How do you, where are the objective moral values? You're just a relativist, Shermer. And it's like, no, I'm not a relativist. I, I believe there are real moral values. Well, how can you obtain those real, objective, absolute moral values without an outside source? Okay, so that's pretty much what I've been working on for decades is trying to answer that question. So even if technically the is-ought naturalistic fallacy still stands, maybe, okay, I'll, I'll concede that point. But surely we're willing to say something, and I quote Abraham Lincoln here, if slavery is not wrong, then nothing is wrong. And I go further to say, if the Holocaust is not wrong, then nothing is wrong. So something happened in the last several centuries where Pretty much everyone in the Western world accepted, well, in the world as a whole, accepted slavery as natural and normal and, and perfectly moral. Now, nobody does, or almost nobody, and it's illegal in every country. What happened? Now, a cultural relativist may just say it's totally random. You know, it could, it could easily go the other way, and this is just what we believe now. And when I push moral relativists on this, you know, they'll agree, yes, of course the Holocaust was wrong, of course slavery is wrong, but not absolutely, not objectively wrong. It's just a, a Western value. It's, it, that implies that this could all go away, that there's nothing real in the moral claim that slavery is wrong. It's just what we happen to think now and that maybe in a few centuries we'll be back at slavery. No, I don't think so. I think that we're discovering moral truths by the understanding of human nature and human societies, what it takes to survive and flourish, what leads to more individuals to survive and flourish or fewer based on political systems, economic systems, different ideologies, beliefs, and so, governments, and, and so on. So here's how I, I put it in the book. Just as it was inevitable that the astronomer, Johannes Kepler, would discover that planets have elliptical orbits, given that he was making accurate astronomical measurements, and given that planets really do travel in elliptical orbits, he could hardly have discovered anything else. Scientists studying political, economic, social, and moral subjects will discover certain things that are true in these fields of inquiry. For example, that democracies are better than autocracies, that market economies are superior to command economies, that torture and the death penalty do not curb crime, that burning women as witches is a fallacious idea that women are not too weak and emotional to run companies or countries. And most poignantly here, that blacks do not like being enslaved and that Jews do not want to be exterminated. 
you know, and then why? Well, just just ask them. <laughs> you know, most people will say, yeah, I don't want to be enslaved. No, I don't want to be exterminated. You know, and so, you know, at the end of that particular chapter, I, I challenge my um, my my moral relativists here. Um, you know, find me a culture where, you know, people, you know, will say, yeah, I think that that, uh, uh, you know, someday we'll find a culture where, where most of the people say they want to be enslaved. I doubt it. You know, it's not impossible, but I doubt it. Um, so anyway, I that's the case I make. And I, I also like uh, Steve Pinker's arguments in this uh, in this case. He has a nice little passage here about um, discovering these things uh, in, in a sense. And this analogy, he writes, we are born with a rudimentary concept of number. But as soon as we build on it with formal mathematical reasoning, the nature of mathematical reality forces us to discover some truths and not others. Perhaps we're born with a rudimentary moral sense, and as soon as we build on it with moral reasoning, the nature of moral reality forces us to some conclusions, but not others. So just things like John Rawls's theory of justice, where um, if you want to pass a law, you should have a veil of ignorance that you don't know which group you're going to be in, and therefore affected by this law, which gets us back to free speech. You know, if I say, well, I think we need some uh, censorship laws, I don't get to know which group I'm going to be in, whether I'm going to be censored or not. Therefore, I want the, you know, the least draconian laws that there are, the most, the most kind of uh, free free speech laws we can have because of that. So that, to me, is a principle we've discovered historically over the last couple of centuries, this idea of, of um, you know, taking the position of somebody else, not knowing how these moral acts are going to affect you because you don't know which group you're going to be in. And that really goes back to the golden rule which was discovered by religions thousands of years ago. I and I say discovered. I think, you know, by trial and error people have figured out there are certain ways to act socially, politically, economically that are better for groups or worse for groups. And we've had several thousand years of experiments that have been run and we should treat these as experiments with data we can collect, much like criminologists study, say, gun control laws across the different 50 states to see what the results are for gun violent rates and, and so forth. It's the same kind of thing. Those are experiments that, that we can uh, tap into to discover certain moral truths um, along the lines of what astronomers do or biologists do. Michael Shermer, thank you very much for talking to Quillette and um, good luck with your book. I hope it isn't overshadowed by the pandemic. Well, it's, you know, everybody on the planet uh, is going through this and you know, maybe this will be something like, in, ter in terms of morality, maybe this will be something like science fiction writers have been writing about for the last hundred years or so. What if we were invaded by, you know, alien invaders from Mars or wherever? Uh, and, uh, you know, would we unite as one people? And I think there's some signs that we are that are pretty good. I mean, there's some craziness like hoarding of toilet paper or whatever that's kind of nutty. Uh, but understandable with game theory logic, you know, you got to do it because you think everybody else is going to do it and so on. But but for the most part, it, it looks uh, pretty positive that we're coming together as a as a global community because obviously it affects everyone in every nation. And now it looks like all ages. Um, so this will be a good test of our moral, um, I guess, fortitude. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.